0: Hey, hey everyone, and welcome to Queerator, the show that celebrates LGBTQ artists and creators. I'm your host, Poppy Fella Pellegrino, and today I'm very honored to have Michael Ackman on the show. Michael is a London-based writer, performer, filmmaker, and dramaturge whose work has been dedicated to exploring queer stories and increasing accessibility for deaf and disabled artists in the film and theater industries. This episode, we'll talk about his play, Nazi Jew Queer, his experimental film style, his work with deaf and disabled artists, generational division within the queer community, and his experience coming out as gay. If you want to check out some of his work, the link to his website will be in the description, as well as the link to his film Awake, which we discuss in this interview. Before we get into it, I'd like to give a small content warning. There is the use of the F-slur at five minutes and three seconds, so feel free to just skip ahead if you don't want to hear that. Thanks for listening to Queerator, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Curator. I'm really excited to talk to you today because I really love your work. Oh, thank you. Obviously, I've I've heard a lot about it from my mother who worked with you. Yeah, and I'm just excited to talk to you about your films and your your theater today. I mean, you're an artist of so many different things. You do dramaturgy and so much writing, but I think we'll probably focus on like theater and films today.
1: Okay, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah it's great to talk to you too. It's sort of. Uh, I've not a well. I just really discovered what you're doing just recently. I reconnected with your mom, and she filled me in a little bit, and then I looked at you know your uh, Instagram and things like that. So it's been exciting to see what you're doing.
0: I would really like to start with um, your play Nazi Jew Queer. Okay. Uh, for those listening, it was a double bill in the '90s that you and my mom did. Uh, you each wrote and performed your own one-person shows. Uh, hers was Lebensborn and yours was Nazi Jew Queer. So I was wondering if you could just talk about how that project came about and um, what that experience was like.
1: Okay, your mom is uh, Sabina Fella. And uh, she and I had a theatre company that started with like five people, and then it went down to four, then it went down to three, and then it ended up just us two were left holding the bag. So we wanted to come up, we came up with this idea of each doing a solo performance, and she would direct mine and I would direct hers. And we were both got interested, there was sort of, I don't, it was kind of like the early 90s. And it seemed like what was on the radar, there was like a rise of, or a resurgence of neo-Nazism in Eastern Europe, maybe with the falling of the Berlin Wall, but it was sort of also starting to filter into North America as well. And so we both wanted to do something that was about uh, racism and neo-Nazism that was coming back and looking at that. And your mom is German and she grew up in Germany and she was really interested in her history of, uh, you know, the history that she had knew about and the history that she didn't know about. So she came up with this fantastic, uh, idea to follow this, uh, her her show was called Lebensborn and it followed this young woman who had been recruited by the, uh, women at that time, there were the Lebensborn girls. They were, um, they were recruited by the state to first of all, service the soldiers, have sex with them. And then even though they were unmarried and, uh, Nazi Germany was so moralistic at the time it was still considered okay for unmarried girls to go get impregnated by soldiers and then they would give over the baby to the state and they were Lebensborn girls and there's kids that came out of these relationships to this day in Germany who are Lebensborn children the product of this kind of system and you know trying to re- trying to deal with their past basically and also t- find their parents in some cases. But your mom came up with this great idea to follow this girl who was, you know, she was infatuated with the Nazis and she wanted to be a Lebensborn girl. And she get goes to one of these centers and gets impregnated just at the time that Germany is losing the war. And which was a fantastic twist in the script. So by the time she has the baby, they don't want it anymore. They can't deal with it. And she's left sort of stuck with this baby that she doesn't want. So it was very, um, we had this, sort of our aesthetic was sort of, you know, dark humor and cabaret and mixing movement theater with uh, narrative theater. So there were a lot of those elements in it. I mean, she did, uh, she did like this dance and there was one scene where she just makes a bed in a very German way, which is how I learned to properly make a bed from watching your mom night after night. (laughs) And then my show, I took a little different tack. My show was Nazi Jew Queer, and I wanted to do three different characters. First character was this young neo-Nazi guy, and he was describing going out, basically what they called fag bashing at that time, gang of neo-Nazi guys going out and beating up a gay guy in the park. But the whole way that he talks about it and the experience of bonding with his friends in this it became a homoerotic thing, like a homoerotic ritual almost. So, the, you know, wanted the audience to question, like in a way this guy was coming out of his, in my mind, it was coming out of his own repressed homoerotic feelings. Um, and then the second monologue was a Jewish lawyer whose house had been vandalized and his house had been vandalized by anti-Semitic people. And his whole rose garden had been sort of taken apart and cut down. And the theme of roses became like sort of a theme running through all three of the monologues. And then the last monologue was this uh, queer guy, this gay guy who was really into SM and and bondage and describing an experience that some people might think of as violent, but uh, that for him was sort of ritualistic and very sexy and safe. So it was kind of trying to look at, violence and masculinity and uh and racism in a whole bunch of different ways
0: and i mean those are such controversial topics um did you get a lot of pushback for that or did people kind of recognize that it was more of a exploration I guess.
1: Well I think at the time it was it was quite provocative to be even it was quite provocative to be dealing with those subjects uh, talking about I think uh, talking about sort of the eroticization of violence or the eroticization of hyper-masculinity within the queer community. That was controversial, and I got some pushback from the queer community for that. I mm-hmm. got some pushback from even having the word Nazi in the title. I mean, some people from the Jewish community thought it was too provocative to even have the word Nazi in the title, and people would criticize it without even having seen the play. So mm-hmm. I think it was kind of uh, it was provocative. Then yeah. we took it to... Your mom still had a friend in Germany, Vera and Vera, Vera uh, Dreyer and Vera Dreyer at the time was, you know, she was connected with different communities there. And she and this other woman, uh, Malu Kensia, brought the show to Germany and we performed it in Berlin at the um, Theater Parkhaus. And the irony was that the Germany, the Germans didn't bat an eye, like because so many people had been doing shows about. At that time, it was a kind of resurgence of people were starting to talk about Nazism in the past. So many people that Mm. were doing shows that were talking about Nazism that they didn't bat an eye. So the show is more controversial in Toronto than it was actually in in Berlin. That's really interesting. Yeah.
0: So I guess it was more well-received in Germany because they were so used to that. And I guess, I mean, I'd expect they were more open to hearing it and like exploring it as well.
1: Yeah, I think there was a a hunger at that time for for work that was exploring that, those subjects Mm -hmm. in Germany, because it had been repressed for so long that people were not allowed to talk about it and people didn't learn about it in school. So it it was a different context.
0: Yeah. Did you perform it in German as well or just in English?
1: Well, when we were in German, I performed my part in uh, English, but Sabina translated hers to German. So the Lebensborn section was in German.
0: Oh, that's really cool.
1: Yeah. And then we also did a thing, so we we put them together a couple of times. We first did it as a fringe production at SummerWorks, and then mm-hmm. we did an official production. And when we brought it back together, I performed in drag as a cabaret, my alter ego, Marguerite, and I introduced Sabina's play. We wrote sort of opening monologues for each other. And Sabina performed it in like drag as a male MC and introducing my show. So that was fun. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's yeah. so much
0: fun. Have
1: do you have you seen pictures of of
0: from that? I've seen like um your promotional picture with the um the I think it's like a fence and you're like leaning against it like that.
1: Oh yeah. I I could um, send you other pictures too because when oh, we went do. to remount it Sabina actually had gotten pregnant. So the irony oh, also yeah. was that with your sister your oldest sister Marlena. Mm-hmm. So I can't remember because we did it a few times, but there was one performance, at least one series of performances where Sabina was performing Lebensborn pregnant. So yeah. it was very ironic. And I think that too was quite provocative for people <laughs> <laughs> because it was so it was so dark, that play. You know, she's a yeah. girl who's like in love with Hitler and fetishizing Hitler and
0: mm-hmm. having a
1: baby for him and for a pregnant woman to do that. I mean, I'm sure some people got gave them the chills
0: (laughs) i thought i thought that was really really cool that she performed it pregnant yeah because she was
1: dancing as well in it so yeah
0: (laughs) yeah i think i've actually seen those promo pictures where you're like with the belly
1: yeah i've got my hands on her belly yeah she's like yeah
0: (laughs) that's my invitation So I guess I'd also like to talk about your films, which are also pretty out there from the ones I've seen. I think I went on your website and I saw like at least seven of them.
1: Um, oh yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. I think my favorite one was Henry. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, What I really loved, it was um the layering with the, um, There's water on the bottom of the screen, and then you reflect it on the top of the screen, too. And it makes this really cool image. And you do a lot of layering in your experimental films. So I was just wondering, like, how do you approach making something that's non-narrative, that's just really an exploration of the form?
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, I'm pleased to hear you say that you liked it because those... Some, the my non-narrative films or my more experimental films are more personal and I don't really send them out to festivals or whatever. I just sort of put them on my website or tell people that. And so I don't always have a feeling that, they actually, that anybody's actually watching them. So it's <laughs> exciting to have somebody watch them. But those are more, I think I start, um, so it's almost like I have a parallel practice of, I started making films that were more experimental and then I got interested in making narrative films. So, you know, I started making videos and videos that were based on poetry. And I did a whole series with uh, this artist called R.M. Vaughn that, you know, we made about 10 films together. And he would always like give me a it started out. He would give me a poem and I would, you know, or a recording of a poem. And I would try and find the images and put them together. So that came very. And I also started making, uh, when I first started making videos, they were more sort of experimental or collage po- poetry type films. And then I became interested in narrative film. And that sort of fed more on my theater background because it was more like writing scripts and things like that. I've continued to try and make that kind of work, but at the same time, I feel like I uh, the experimental films or the non-narrative films are much easier. And that the way that I usually approach those is just sort of looking through uh, old footage. I'm always shooting stuff. So looking through clips and then putting them together, it's very intuitive, putting mm-hmm. them together, cutting out little bits that I like or gathering little bits into a folder of 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 images. And a lot of times they're things that I've forgotten about. And mm-hmm. I sort of pull them together and then play around with them. And it's much more playful and less cerebral, I think. And then mm-hmm. I also sometimes I play on, you know, GarageBand or something like that. And I create these little soundtracks and then I find these soundtracks and I put them together or change the soundtrack. So that's kind of a more playful or uh, a more playful practice, I think. <laughs> Although that one in particular, Henry, was at, at another because uh, R.M. Vaughn recently died uh, uh, and then Henry was another one that was sort of made in memoriam and, uh, uh, an old friend of mine who had passed away too. So sometimes there's an inspiration to go looking for these things, but I'm not sure. I felt like the feeling or the quality of that one was very moody and very Henry himself was very kind of, uh, uh I don't know, kind of, uh, he was—he really f- great sense of humor and funny, but also very cynical person. So there was something sort of dark and moody about those images that I thought went with how I was feeling when I found out that he had died. Mm-hmm. Those are all shot on the Rhine, actually. That—that
0: oh, that really? was a
1: trip I did. Uh, yeah, on um. Was a, this is another long story, but a cruise up the Rhine, I was, I was supporting a blind woman who was invest, Alex Palmer, who was investigating how to travel as a blind person. And then I was her support worker on that trip. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she did was we went on a cruise up the Rhine. So that's where all those images are for.
0: Um, and I guess speaking of Alex, you do a lot of work with disabled artists and about disabled artists and trying to make filmmaking and theater accessible. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about your inspiration for that and why, why that's so important to you. That
1: work it sort of happened by accident in a way that I started... Um, Alex might have been the first one that I worked with. So I met Alex through a theatre scene. We were in a, a play together and she was involved. There was a project put on by the Toronto Theatre Alliance with Alex and Rose Jacobson called... Well, they were just starting a project that was about doing workshops with disabled artists. And I met Alex, and Alex had made a film, her first film called Beauty, by herself. And then she wanted somebody to work on a second film with. And um, I came on board as sort of like cinematographer and editor, but also we were really developing a process, even though she had made one film, we were developing the process how she could make a film. So it was kind of, uh, you know, I would, When we were shooting stuff, I would tell her what she would tell me what she was going for. And I would try and describe what we were getting. And then she would tell me how she wanted it to change. And the same thing happened in the editing room that, you know, we had this footage and I would describe the footage for her. She would give me an idea of what she wanted. It was like a a lot of back and forth. And uh, so we were working on that film together. And Alex had been had come to London, where I am now, and she had found this disability film festival. Uh, which was, it wasn't the first disability film, fe- the London Disability Film Festival. It wasn't the first of disability film festival, so not the first of its kind, but it was sort of radical in the way that they approached it in that a lot of, even to this day, uh, disability film festivals feature films about disabled people, but not by disabled filmmakers. And mm-hmm. a lot of times it's like the non-disabled gaze on the disabled world. So a lot of them are like either, it's either pity, the typical things are pity or heroism. So either somebody mm-hmm. is like, how are they coping with their disability? or how were they, uh, or they're jumping out of a plane, you know. (laughs) A disabled person jumping out of a plane. So, Mm -hmm. but the, the London Disability Film Festival was really different in that it was nurturing disabled filmmakers and the screenings were all completely, well, not completely accessible, but the screenings were all trying to be inclusive with audio description and sign language interpretation and captions and accessible venues. So Alex, they had an archive of all the films that they had uh, shut screened over. This was probably, they were in their fifth year and Alex had been to the festival to show her first film. She wanted to come back with me to bring me and look at their archive and I would describe all the films. So we got here and um, there at that time, uh, disability arts was so much more progressed than it than what i was used to in canada so uh through a kind of i think it really came out of an, an activist scene and a disability rights movement and they mm-hmm. through the disability rights movement which was very progressive here and had made a lot of progress there was an art scene that developed alongside that and so there were all these amazing artists working in theater and working in film and working in music and everything that i i just was really interested in mm-hmm. And I met my partner who was running the Disability Film Festival. Alex came on that visit. We both met people that time. So <laughs> she ended up staying and I ended up staying as well. So but, so it was partly coming back. I was interested in this guy that I you know, had met, Shalar, who's my partner now. But also, it just seemed like the, the disability art scene was so interesting here. Mm-hmm. And then but the area that I got into of working out was more the theater scene and I started working for Gray Eye Theater Company and mm-hmm. I ended up working there almost 10 years and becoming the access manager there so what my role there was was sort of uh, creating access for disabled artists deaf and disabled artists that worked with the company but also working on making their shows accessible to deaf and disabled audiences. And Grey Eye was pretty revolutionary. They still are in terms of they want to make their shows accessible, but not just with, they want to try and, uh, experiment with how access can be an artistic tool as well as a kind of just an access tool. But right. then when I was started working at Grey Eye, so my official sort of day job was as access manager, but then I met all these deaf and disabled actors who were fantastic. And I really wanted to work with them. And I like working, I like writing things for actors that I know. And at the same time, a lot of these people were not getting work that was really showcasing them well. Like it was still kind of, things have changed a little bit, but it, there was a lot of actors who should have been working more and were just ripe for working more and handing them mm-hmm. a script and working. So I got really interested in that. And then through that, I made uh, I made one a film called welcome stop which was very diy and a bit a bit clunky i think and then i made uh but then after that i made a film with alex and with another friend of mine Margot cargill so it was like two blind actors uh and that was my film welcome stop and that had a lot of that that was received really well and played a lot of disability film festivals and sort of connected me quite
0: well with awake I saw that one as well. Yeah. First of all, I really liked how it wasn't all about them being blind. It was about their connection and it was about um just becoming more open to the world, which I thought was really touching. And there's this moment where um they're passing a joint between each other and they're trying to find each other's hands. Yeah. Um and I read that that was like an improvised moment because they just they couldn't find each other's hands and it was just so I don't know, it was just so personal and and fun.
1: Yeah, I think I really benefited from knowing those two so well, like it was, you know, I know both of the actors or actresses really, really well. And so it was, it was a, it was very comfortable and natural process. And it allowed us to discover things like that, like that moment with Passing the Joint. It's a really, it turned, it wasn't scripted, but it turned and it just happened. And then as soon as it happened, we all knew that it was perfect for the film. And just to clarify it a little bit they're kind of you know one of them is very uptight she's a jehovah witness and she pops in on the other one who is a very depressed person and she's almost you know she's having existential crisis and she she, they get into some trouble and then one of them starts rolling a joint and jehovah witness asks if she can have a toke of it which is a complete surprise and then they she passes it to her she takes a toke and she says she doesn't feel anything and then she's trying to pass it back but they keep missing each other because they can't see each other and they're trying to pass it back. And then when they finally connected, then both of the actors naturally started laughing. And it's the first moment in the whole story where they actually have a laugh together. It's a real turning point. So that was like gold. It was, it was great. But I'm, I want to pick up on something you said because the fact that it's not about all about them being blind, and that pertains to queer work, I think. Mm-hmm. Um because that's what a lot of people, you still, even this many years later, so it's probably like, you know, I've been in London, it's probably like 15 years later. Uh, this, we went around to a lot of film festivals with that, uh, with that film. And that was the comment we always got. It was kind of like, uh, you would still see most of the films were this, you know, either pity or bravery kind of view of, uh, of disabled people and unfortunately the London film F- the London disability film festival which was a model of g- good practice they folded mm-hmm. so that isn't happening anymore and you're we're left with a lot of these film festivals which are great and they show great content and they do show films by deaf and disabled artists but the overwhelming amount of them are this other model, which is sort of this non-disabled gaze of disabled people, and this very traditional things like this poor person, how are they dealing with the, their disability, or somebody finds mm-hmm. out that they're, you know, losing some they're losing their hearing, and and you know, how do they deal with it? Or you know, a child who feels left out, or it's all this pity stuff. Mm -hmm. And this film was like a breath of fresh air, if I do say so myself, because and a lot of people commented on that, that it was kind of like, it was like disability film 2.0. It's like, it's not about people coping with their disability. It's about disabled people doing things and living in the world. And you try Mm -hmm. and make it as authentic as possible. And you try and include their voices and have a real, you know, you can't go into that with deciding I want to make a film about blind people you have to work with blind people and know their world and things like that Mm -hmm. it's very similar to queer film when queer film first started coming out in the 80s and 90s every single queer film was about somebody coming out and that was like uh, and or somebody hiding it or but coming out story after coming out story and I still like coming out films and I think in certain contexts, they're really interesting. But at a certain point, we moved on, I think, in queer film to queer film 2.0, where it was just queer people doing things, you know, like Mm -hmm. the story wasn't about there's somebody finding out or hiding it or whatever. And so I thought the parallel was really interesting that it seemed almost like disability film was a little bit behind queer film in that queer film had sort of moved on.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that you bring that up because I think so many people view this, I mean it's heteronormative, it's it's white, it's um not disabled, and that's like they think that those types of people are the people who can tell stories that are greater than just I'm disabled or I'm queer. But you can use queer people to tell these stories as well. You can use disabled people to tell these stories as well. It can be something that relates to everyone. Um, if you know, if you're not part of that community, it can relate to everyone. Um, and I think that's really where we're where we're heading now. Yeah. Especially with like race and everything, you know, huge racism in the film industry.
1: Yeah, I think it's because those are the people who have had a- access to the tools and access to the funding and things like that. But hopefully, exactly. yeah, that's changing. And also, you know, hearing non-binary, more non-binary and more trans voices in, mm-hmm. in film also, which is, I mean... So much of what's interesting about film for me is seeing another world, right? So to see the same old, same old story or the same old, same old people is not as interesting as hearing from a voice that you haven't heard before. So Mm
0: -hmm. definitely, I
1: think that's a real and that's one of the I think that's a sort of a a great um, advantage of film or a great role for film to play is opening up. a a window on different lives like that. And that's political by itself. Yeah, that's something too with, you know, even though it wasn't trying to make a statement awake, uh, I think it became political just for people to see that, for somebody to see a blind woman living on her own, another blind woman who's a Jehovah Witness and she goes from door to door on her own and people see, Mm -hmm. okay, somebody can get around or they go for a walk in the park, somebody can get around, you know. Mm -hmm. When we were there, also, we would go to film festivals and people would either not believe that they were blind or not believe that they were professional actors. And that was something too, especially going into other countries. I mean, the idea of a disabled, you know, blind woman being a professional actor, which both of them are both both of them are professional actors. And Alex is also a writer and a playwright herself. A director as well but the idea that they could be professional actors and that the story wasn't their life story like everyone people mostly thought oh you found them and it's like a, was this a documentary and it's no it's a <laughs> fiction film these are professional actors so
0: yeah Wow, well,
1: that was that felt political that, to bring that yeah to bring that to other places
0: yeah that definitely um brings to light all of that um i guess mixed narrative that people have created um, yeah. by not putting disabled people in position, positions of power to tell their stories, you know?
1: But it's still controversial. I mean, there's still a lot of... You constantly hear of some... I'm trying to think of what was the most recent one, but there's constantly non-disabled people playing disabled parts, right?
0: Yeah, I think there's... Um, the recent scandal that everyone's really mad about is this Sia movie. I don't know if you've heard oh, yeah, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's called Music, and... Yeah. Um, oh, my God. Like I I won't I won't get into it too much. We'll talk for hours, but um, people are really like fired up about it, especially the way she is reacting to it. Like she's not being gracious at all, or trying to understand where people are coming from.
1: Yeah. Um. She handled. Yeah. She didn't handle that very well. I think she didn't no. listen. She didn't listen to her <laughs> PR people. But it's also hard to believe. It's also hard to believe that she could have been working on it for that long without anybody telling her that that could potentially be an issue although maybe she just batted it off
0: yeah and i mean it could be wrong but i don't think there's disabled people working on the production as well so that seems you know a bit a yeah. bit weird yeah so i um i guess i'd like to talk about your new film as well okay. or in an anto yeah um i saw that one as well i really loved it oh great I think the the themes that you explored in it are so important, and I'd like to talk about them too. But first, do you want to give like a little intro to the film, what it's about.
1: Yeah, Oru Nananto, sort of the story of uh, uh, two people who are by accident share an Airbnb, the same Airbnb for the night, and one of them is a young Scottish non-binary person. Uh, who's just in town for a conference and they're uh, a marine biologist and they're here for a marine biology conference. And the other one is, uh, and they're young, they're in their twenties. And the other one who they share the space with, and it's just, it's actually my studio, which we're in right now, or you can see right now, but uh, it's a studio sort of style apartment. And um, the other one is a young fifties, 50 year old AIDS era, gay man, sort of kind of a, a little bit of a typical gay man what you might say like uh with that kind of typical gay sensibility and through a mistake they sp- they have to share that they decide that they're going to share the space for the night but they quickly sort of get on each other's nerves and they have to- they- what comes out is their differing sort of values and their uh views particularly the I think there's more. There's some intolerance, on the gay man's he doesn't really understand what non binarism is, and is, isn't really accepting of it. A little bit intolerant, and uh, it does come out that there's also a sort of little bit of a kind of um, presumption or projection on the part of the of of. So he the the gay guy is called uh, Anto, and the non-binary person is called Oren. And on Oren's part, there's also some assumptions that they make on Anto. But, uh, and then in the end, they sort of find a way of resolving it. And for me, it was kind of, it came out of uh, this feeling like that there was a lot of division happening within the queer community. And I found that very distressing. I found it very distressing for people not to give each other space. And it made me, so it was a little bit of distress, but it was also really a lot of curiosity, like, I found in a lot of uh, my generation of uh, men and women as well. But, uh, you know, for me, it was, I I think I can speak better for the men. There was a lot of, like, lack of understanding or lack of openness around trans issues and around non-binary issues. And I really was curious, like, where is that coming from? Like, it almost seemed, Mm -hmm. how can you, you've experienced kind of discrimination, you've experienced intolerance. How could you be close to this? So I actually thought it was quite interesting to try and explore that.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that too, even in the younger generation, um, that a lot of gay people aren't really aware of trans issues. And I mean, it seems kind of strange because you know, if you're on the rainbow, you should stick up for each other, you should stick with each other. In the film, Oren says we should be allies to yeah. Anto. And that's, that's really true. We should all be sticking up for each other and trying to stay together, but there is so much division within the queer community. Um, I mean, both between gay and trans people, but also in terms of like race and um, disabled people as well. And yeah, that, that division I never quite understood. So I thought that was really interesting to address because I don't think it's addressed a lot actually in films and theater.
1: Yeah. At least one of the issues in the film that I wanted to deal with was, you know, in the older generation, this feeling that people who had been through those fights and especially the people who had been through the AIDS catastrophe and AIDS activism and everything like that, who are now being challenged by the younger generation and they're being challenged by uh people on on the basis of queer movement has been racist has been misogynist has been anti-trans and I think at least which I tried to typify or personalize with the character of uh Anto they don't want to be told that there's a certain level you feel like you fought how dare people tell you that you're not woke you know if you're if you're 50 years old and you've been through seeing you know your your friends die and You've been on the mm-hmm. picket line for AIDS issues and then somebody tells you, oh, the movement's racist or you you were, you never let, you know, people of color speak in that movement or you you pushed mm-hmm. out this. They don't want to hear it. And I, I felt then that made me question, is there any truth to this idea that the young, the younger generation isn't recognizing what the older generation went through or that some of our struggles, because I am of that older generation, that some of our struggles are being forgotten or taken for granted or Mm -hmm. anything like that. And I tried to develop that in the film as well. It's also about familiarity. Like as soon you know, you have these, you have people who are transphobic and then if their kid turns out to be trans, then all of a sudden they become an activist. So a lot of it is familiarity. And if you see that somebody's lived experience is actually... You know it's easy to sort of if you don't know anybody it's easy to sort of abstract about it and say this is right and this is wrong or why should people need to be non-binary when why can't they be this is what anton's anto says he says why can't you just be like a very femme gay man or a very butch uh lesbian mm-hmm. uh but when he meets somebody who actually that's their lived experience they feel like they're non-binary that's what makes them happy then it's kind of it takes the wind it you know it's like bursts the balloon it's kind of like okay who am i to say what your lived experience should be and what does it hurt me to acknowledge your lived experience so that was i think that was that was sort of what i was going for so anyway that's interesting
0: yeah um So I guess moving on to, I mean, we've been, we've been talking about queer topics this whole time, basically, so I guess (laughs) not moving on, but, um, I guess focusing on, um, I always ask people here um, about their coming out process. Would you be comfortable sharing your process and what that was like for you?
1: Um, if I can remember, (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I went away to college. And when I was at I was there was a part of this that I was actually thinking about the other day, because it's, it's sort of it's hard for me to remember so much what it felt like being in the closet. But I remember even when I was in college, I was having crushes on like, you know, my guy friends and and it's hard for me to really remember what it what that. What kept me, you know, what I was, you know, it's obviously like fear and shame and things like that, but what kept me from coming out for so long. But anyway, while I was away, I did have some few of my first experiences with not really. I did have a short sort of a short term boyfriend, but then I came back to Toronto uh, and I was pretty confused about what I was doing and I came and I went back to living with my parents Mm -hmm. So at that point I was still in the closet and then I had to come out to my there was a point I reached, I guess, I, you know, I had two issues going on, I always wanted to be an artist, and I got a lot of pressure not to be an artist. So I had to come out as an artist. And I also was coming out as being queer. And I think Mm -hmm. on the pretext of coming out as an artist and being really lost in my life and not knowing what I wanted to do, I started to have therapy. And then the therapist, I was lucky, I had a really good therapist. And he was sort of saying, well, the problem isn't that you're gay we're not going to fix that the problem is Mm -hmm. how do you how do you live as a gay person and 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 uh how do you navigate the kind of uh the challenges of in a homophobic culture of being queer so that Mm -hmm. gave me strength to sort of come out to my i came out to my mother and she said she thought that my father was going to have a heart attack if we told him and then he said he knew (laughs) (laughs) She thought that he was the one that was going to be so surprised, but it turned out he she was surprised, but he wasn't surprised. But they had, and back that you know that was like 1982, 1983. For them, I mean, I recognize, you know, I really think we have a long way to go. But there weren't the cultural, the culture was not. It, the gay queer culture was buried so there were no popular figures out there was no ellen there were no people out there who were who were uh out queer people or who you knew even people who were obviously queer like in history like michelangelo it wasn't spoken about that they were queer so mm-hmm. my parents had a lot of trouble coming to terms with it and they went to p flag which was really good for them and then i started to have boyfriends and bring home bring introduce them to guys and then Mm -hmm. they they my mother ended up being completely supportive and marching in the gay pride parade so
0: oh yeah that's so great
1: (laughs) yeah she's been great yeah so and then my nephew recently came out he's 30 and he came out uh you know in his 20s and he struggled with this it's my brother's kid And he's so I've seen sort of what it's like for him. And I think it it was still hard for him to come out. But I think Mm -hmm. it's it's a different world as well. Right. So,
0: yeah, totally. And I mean, it totally depends where you live, where you come from. Even here in Toronto, there's such a a variety of stories.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. But it must have been really scary to come out when there's no like you said, there's no Ellen. There's no people to look up to.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was, you felt this kind of shame about it, or you you really didn't feel like there were no role models either, like, you know, my parents right. didn't have any gay friends who were in couples or whatever, so,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so, and gay culture was very different at that time, too, so then gay culture was sort of coming, just coming out, but it was a very stereotype, or there, it was seen as one thing, like... Right. There wasn't a huge diversity in the in the images of gay culture
0: that we were getting, right? So I know in the nineties especially, like Greg Araki started coming out and um there was this whole like queer new wave of really abrasive films, I guess. This yeah. whole like culture and film. So did that help you a little bit just to come to terms with it and get more comfortable with it?
1: In a way, yes. I think not so much in the images that were coming out, but that that when like that new queer cinema came out, it really sort of galvanized the community. You really felt like you were part of something. And I remember going to like Inside Out, Inside Out was starting up and showing these films and seeing these films, it just made you feel like you were part of uh, a movement or a community. So yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much that the images in those films, because a lot of those films, like you say, I mean, it was like, I remember one of the first ones was about Leopold and Loeb. Or was it poison? Or there was another one. And a lot of them were were kind of like bizarre and not necessarily role models that you would want. But the <laughs> idea that there was an exciting culture and that we were, you know, queer people were creating the culture. So that was very exciting. But then AIDS yeah. happened and it it decimated the community. And it was a huge crisis. And it was very scary on both like a community level and also just personal level. It was very scary. You didn't know we didn't know you didn't know if you were positive or not or you and if you would get AIDS. you thought any day you could develop aids and you would die from it Mm -hmm. so that was hard but at the other sense it did bring the community together and it kind of even though a lot of it was really terrible the way that it was seen in the media or projected in the media there was this huge visibility so there was something about that that kind of i don't know a little bit normalized it in a way maybe
0: mm-hmm. i just i guess kind of brought it out in the culture more
1: yeah people had to talk about it and then there were things like rock hudson died of aids and then everybody realized rock hudson was gay and he mm-hmm. was like the icon of heterosexual you know the perfect yeah. man and then people realized he totally. was gay so but it was at hu- a huge cost i guess
0: yeah definitely Um, And finally, I guess, do you have any wisdom for young queer people or people just starting to get comfortable with their identities?
1: Yeah, I would say, like, try and find your community. Try and find like people or open-minded people to work with. And your own identity or your own strangeness or your own uniqueness is, as an artist, that's, like, the place to start, I think. That's, you know... (laughs) It might feel whatever is difficult emotions or whatever is something that's hard to accept about yourself or that is unique about yourself, or you might feel like you're really strange. That's a great starting point for art. And that is, you know, that's where artists come from. So there's a great poem by this is also another artist from that area. She's still working, Karen Finley. She's a performance artist and she has this great poem called The Black Sheep. And it feels like, you know, the black sheep, she felt like the black sheep in her family as an artist and anybody's, Mm -hmm. I think queer people feel a lot like they're the black sheep in the family, but it's, that can be a unifying thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's good advice. It's good advice. Um, And finally, to name the episode, have you thought of three words to describe yourself?
1: Okay, I'll say persevere, curious, heron, heron the bird.
0: Got it why heron i'm curious (laughs)
1: that's my favorite bird oh yeah and i see them all the time i've been in lockdown in london here and uh i've been sort of going for walks all you know the only respite or the only release is like uh walks or bike rides and so i started seeing you know spending more much more time in the parks and there's herons in the parks, which usually I associate herons with being, you know, out in the out in the wilds or something. But there's herons living in the parks.
0: Oh, that's so, so nice! I
1: love them. When you see them take off, they've got this huge, they're very majestic, huge wingspans.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> well, those are three good words. I like it. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's been lovely talking to you.
1: Oh, it's been really nice talking to you too, and it's made me really think a lot about different things. So.
0: Thank I'm you good. for inviting me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can find episodes of Queerator on Spotify, Anchor, and YouTube. For show updates, follow us on Instagram at Queerator Once again, if you'd like to check out Michael's work, I've left the link to his website in the description, as well as his Instagram handle and the link to his film Awake. I'll see you next time when I'll be speaking with Tyler McMillan, a clothing designer and makeup artist based in Toronto. Hope to see you then. Stay proud.